Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 36 on page 549 in your pew Bible. Psalm 36. Superscription reads, To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Only um, two superscriptions refer to David um, as the servant of the Lord. Psalm 18. And here, Psalm 36. The servant of the Lord says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God, your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life in your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Congregation Psalm 36 is um, not necessarily one of the most uh, well-known psalms, and yet there are, are certain portions of this psalm that are frequently cited. It's not hard to find a piece of wall art with Verses 5 and 6, maybe even down through verse 9. There are contemporary worship songs that make those same verses their theme, which are, are certainly worth reflecting on. And yet I wonder whether those verses, those verses in the middle about God's steadfast love reaching to the heavens, I, I wonder whether those verses aren't, aren't sometimes uh, removed from, from their context such that they're made to mean something less than what David here meant by them in Psalm 36. That's what I mean. Um, David's declaration of God's steadfast love in the middle of this psalm flows out of a description of the sinfulness of the wicked at the beginning of the psalm. That um, opening line in verse 1 is, is somewhat difficult. If you're following along in the ESV, it, it translates it, transgression speaks to the wicked Deep in his heart, or yeah, deep in his heart, it says. And, and so the idea is that sin is, is being personified as the, the speaker. Transgression is speaking in, in the midst of the heart of the wicked. And the SB translates it that way because it literally says something like an oracle of the, the transgression of the wicked is in the midst of my heart. 
And so it seems like this might be an, an oracle of or from uh, sinfulness personified. But there's another way that we could read this, uh, this, this word of, and that's not as an oracle um, of or, or from transgression personified, but as an oracle um, of or, or about the transgression of the wicked. And I think that's the way that makes more sense, is if David is here saying, I have been given an oracle from God concerning the very nature of the wicked. That's how both the NIV and the New King James take it. Um, the NIV says, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. Um, if you, you look in our hymnal, number 36a takes it that same way, that David is relaying a, a description, an oracle from God about the, the heart of the wicked. And as he does this, I, I think the, the psalm's superscription um, relates this back to the wicked in Psalm 35. Remember last week in, in the afternoon, we looked at that prayer for judgment where at the end of the psalm, in verse 27, David describes himself as God's servant. That psalm was all about the wicked who unjustly sought his life. He showed them good. He loved them, and yet they repaid his good with evil. False witnesses surrounded him. They sought his life. They hid their net for him and devised words of deceit. Repaid his good for evil, and it says they gnashed their teeth at him. And so David is praying for God's judgment. And for God's people, as a result of that judgment, to delight in the welfare of God's servant, the king. That's what he says in verse 27. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of of his servant. And so now two verses later, in the superscription of Psalm 36, when it calls David the servant of the Lord, this is picking up on those themes from Psalm 35. It's, it's like that word servant is, is almost like a hyperlink directing us back to Psalm 35. Where after that psalm, where David rightly prays for the judgment of the wicked... God now gives David this oracle concerning the wickedness of those who there opposed him. And that, that's the subject of verses 1 through 4. I'm leading into verse 5 and David's confident declaration of the boundless love of God and his faithfulness. It is in the context of a description of the wicked, the same ones who sought his life in Psalm 35 that David now makes this declaration about the steadfast love of God reaching to the heavens. And then if you look at the end of the psalm, the prayer that then flows from David's declaration about God's love is for God to continue his steadfast love toward him by not letting the wicked drive him away, but thrusting them down. In the context of the psalm, I would suggest the expression of God's steadfast love is through the judgment prayed for in Psalm 35. That the precious steadfast love extolled in the center of the psalm cannot be separated from the righteous judgment at the end of the psalm. David's declaration of the steadfast love of God here in the middle is, is sandwiched between these two statements 
about the wicked. And so we see here in Psalm 36, what I've suggested before is at the heart of the Bible's message, the glory of God in salvation through judgment. I think Psalm 36 here serves as as something of a bridge between Psalm 35 and Psalm 37, where in the one, David prays for God's judgment, and then in the next, Psalm 37, he calls for all God's people, the, the meek ones who dwell in the land, not to fret on account of the wicked who will soon perish, while God saves the meek who take refuge in him. All of those themes are found here in Psalm 36, where David calls us to take refuge in God's precious, steadfast love in the midst of a world of wickedness. That's, that's the flow, or the, the big picture of Psalm 36, and so we're going to look um, at it in two parts this morning. First, at the anatomy of evil in verses 1 through 4, and then against that backdrop, the hope of love and justice in verses 5 through 12. First, the anatomy of evil. The first thing um, David says in this oracle about the sinfulness of the wicked is that there is no fear of God before his eyes. He's saying they do not recognize the greatness and the majesty of the God of heaven. That's the starting point of his description of wickedness, a failure to recognize the holiness and the majesty of God. And he'll go on to say in verse 2 that that the wicked uh, flatters himself thinking that his iniquity cannot be found out. But that the fundamental problem from which that and everything else is going to flow is a low view of God's majesty. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Paul will quote this in Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3, 10 to 18, he gives this this long description of of human sinfulness where he quotes from from some 10 or so different Old Testament passages. And this one is is the final one, serving as, as, as something of a climax of this long description of human sinfulness, the absence of the fear of God. A low view of God's majesty and of his holiness of the fact that he does see all and he will bring every man to account. I remember reading a few years ago from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, when we wake up in the morning, we, we should immediately remind ourselves and recollect that we are in the presence of God. It's not a bad thing, he says, to say to ourselves before we go any further throughout the whole of this day, everything I say and do and attempt and think and imagine is going to be under the eye of God. Lloyd-Jones says it would revolutionize our lives if we always did that. But the problem with, with the men of whom David speaks is that they don't do that. But altogether lacking is a sense of the fear of God and an awareness of his presence. There is no fear of God in their eyes, but they flatter themselves and think that their sin cannot be found out. Either because God will not see, or because they have convinced themselves that they're actually innocent. William Wilberforce said, we have a natural proneness to think too favorably of ourselves. 
Selfishness disposes us to, to overrate our good qualities and to overlook or, or uh, extenuate our defects. There is, by virtue of our sinful nature, a tendency to defend ourselves against every accusation. Uh, Lloyd-Jones said, even if we, we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we won't. The only way to know that we are sinners is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. It's as we see God that we know ourselves. Isn't that what we see in Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah sees this vision of the majesty of God of the temple. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of, uh, of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. It says he sees the majesty of God that he knows himself as a sinner. We, we'll, we'll see the same thing next week in um, Luke chapter 5 as we, we look at, at uh, Jesus and that great catch of fish in Luke 5, whereas as Peter sees this um, awesome expression of Christ's power, he then responds and says, depart from me, for I am a man, or I am a sinful man. This is what Calvin meant when he, he said, man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and then come down after such contemplation to look into himself. It's in beholding the majesty of God that we come to know our sin. But these men have no fear of God in their eyes. They have not done that, and, and so they believe that their iniquity cannot be found out. They have deceived themselves. And so flowing from this self-deception that is born from an absence of the fear of God are the words of deceit that David mentions in verse 3, where he says, speaking of of the wicked here in in the singular, but this is true of all of them, the words of their mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good, but he plots trouble while he's on his bed, setting himself in a way that is not good. It's interesting how much of this actually echoes Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. The the plotting of, of trouble reminds us of the kings and rulers in Psalm 2, taking counsel against the Lord's anointed. Their ceasing to act wisely and do good reminds us of the king's invitation at the end of Psalm 2 to be wise and serve the Lord with fear and trembling. They will not do the wise thing and fear God embracing his king, but instead they plot trouble against him. While they should be meditating on his law day and night, instead they're plotting day and night of trouble. And so they set themselves in a way that is not good. They, they do not set themselves in the way of Psalm 1, but in the way of the wicked. Because they are not meditating on God's law, and because there is no fear of God in their eyes, they fool themselves into thinking they're fine. While all the while they have set themselves on the way that is not good, the way that in Psalm 1-6 will lead them to perish. Listen to David's oracle about the sinfulness of the wicked and take heed. He's giving us here a description of the anatomy of sin and wickedness. He tells us it begins with a lack of of godly fear. That lack of godly fear then leads them to think too highly of themselves so they become desensitized to their sin 
so that they only proceed further down the road to destruction, setting themselves in a way that is not good and ultimately setting themselves against the king. They do not reject evil, but in fact become evil. It's worth noting, David is is most likely speaking of of members of the covenant community like Saul or or Absalom or Ahithophel. And so reminds us, as Paul does in 1 Timothy, to take heed to ourselves. Is the fear of God before your eyes? Are you flattering yourself so that you have become desensitized to your sin, not able to see it when others point it out? What kinds of words are in your mouth? Words of deceit and words of trouble? As Paul says in Ephesians 4, words that build up. What do you do when you lie in your bed? Do you meditate on God's law? Or do you plot about sin? David is helping us to understand the anatomy of evil, not only in the world outside of us, but even within us. And so again, calls us to be wise and kiss the sun that we might not perish. To lift your eyes to see the majesty of God and then see your own sin in light of it and flee to the sun. The answer for those who see themselves in verses 1 through 4 is to run to Jesus who had no transgression in his heart yet died for sin so that those who, who stop flattering themselves and confess their iniquity might be forgiven and become the objects of that steadfast love that David speaks of in verse 5. But of course, I also mentioned um, that this steadfast love that's described beginning in verse 5 also means a certain stance from God toward those who continue to oppose his king and and oppose his people. That's what I want to consider now as you think about the hope of love and justice. It's out of this consideration of the evil that lives in the hearts of those who hate David. He is led to exclaim, your steadfast love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains. Your judgments like the ocean deep. And at first, this might feel like sort of an odd transition, but but think about what David's doing. When he speaks of God's steadfast love, that's that Hebrew word hesed, God's covenant love, whereby he binds himself to his people and is faithful to them. As David says at the end of verse 5, speaks of of, of not just his covenant of steadfast love, his hesed, but but flowing from that, his faithfulness at the end of verse 5, even in verse 6, exercising his righteousness and his Justice. This is not out of nowhere. This declaration of praise does not come to us in a vacuum, but is birthed out of the oracle in verses 1 to 4 about the wicked who were plotting against God's servant. And so what does David do? He casts himself on God's steadfast covenant love who has made to him promises and will be faithful to them. It will show his righteousness and justice on David's behalf. 
Do you see the progression in David's thinking? The, the thought of the wicked who spitefully oppose him leads him to consider the steadfast love of God that cannot be separated from his righteous judgments by which he saves. You see that at the end of verse 6. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. These are not abstract platitudes. But these are personal ways that God relates to those who need his saving help. These attributes that are listed in verses 5 and 6, these are not some abstract platitudes. David is saying, all of this you are towards me and those who need your saving help. We're able in verse 7 to take refuge under the shadow of his wings. Because he is a God of steadfast love who rules with justice for his people, with, with justice for his servant. We'll come back to verses 8 and 9. But notice how in verse 10, as he asks God to continue his steadfast love toward those who know him, the petition that then flows from that is, let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away, but verse 12, there the evildoers lie fallen, they are thrust down, unable to rise. Yes, flowing from David's exclamation about the steadfast love of God is a prayer for the just judgment of God. And so David again teaches us that these two things are not as separate as we might think. In fact, we, we sang of it in Psalm 143 just before the sermon where at the end of it, David says, in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and destroy all the adversaries of my soul for I am your servant. And there the, the servant of the Lord, just as, as in this psalm, extols the steadfast love of God that is shown through the exercise of his justice. We see the same relationship between these two attributes in Psalm 36, where I would suggest the very nature of the covenant love that David extols in verse 5 is what we find at the end of the psalm where justice is executed on behalf of God's people. And the wicked of verse 1 do not drive David away, but lie fallen. God's love and God's justice are two sides of the same coin. We, we see this over and over throughout redemptive history. Think of the flood. Think of the exodus. God's love and God's justice in one and the same act. And, and we see this climactically in the first and second coming of our Lord Jesus. We're at the cross. The wrath and justice of God are poured out in the greatest act of love that's ever been. And when Christ comes yet a second time, he will again execute justice on behalf of his people in love. This is at the very heart of the Bible's message, the love of God in Christ shown through judgment. We see it in that very first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman will, will come as the redeemer of God's people and he will crush the head of the serpent. Andrew Peterson captures this well in a, a song as he, he, he describes these, these dual aspects of God's love and God's justice coming together. He says, every stone that makes you stumble, 
and cuts you when you fall, every serpent here that strikes your heel to curse you when you crawl. The king of love will one day crush them all. And every sad seduction, and every clever lie, every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, the king of love will break them by and by. He says, if the thief had come to plunder, when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not the father see this? Would not his anger burn? Would he not repay the tyrant in the day of his return? And Peterson is making the point that the just judgment of God is an expression of the steadfast fatherly love of God. That was true at the cross. That will be true when Christ comes again as the king of justice, the the king of love to crush those evildoers of verse 12 who would torment his people. The evildoers who, who last week in Burkina Faso in West Africa stormed a local church in the middle of their worship killing 15 people. The king of love sees And in his steadfast love, he will answer the prayer, verses 10 through 12, to avenge. Psalms like this remind our brothers and sisters throughout the world that God will judge all evil and that the wicked who are described in verses 1 through 4 and the psalm just before this will not prevail. But like it says, the very entryway into the Psalter in Psalm 1, the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, but the way of the wicked will perish. And God's children will take refuge in the shadow of his wings, Psalm 2, 12, in, in the shadow of his son, who will cause us to feast forever on the abundance of his house. That's what, what the psalmist says here in verse 8, where we will drink from the river of his delights. And it's fascinating, that word delights is actually the the Hebrew word um, Eden, so that in the midst of all the evil surrounding them, David is leading the people of God here to look to God's precious, steadfast love, the eternity of feasting in his house, where they will drink from the river of the, 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 the water of life, just like in that first garden paradise in Eden, satisfied by the presence of God who is the fountain of life. David is calling God's people here. He's calling us to lift our eyes to the endless satisfaction that will be ours in that eternal city to which we journey now as pilgrims, where he will prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies and our cup will overflow. And goodness and mercy there in Psalm 23, I believe that's this same word for, for steadfast love, will follow us all the days of our life. That eternal satisfaction together with, with the vindication of God's servant is the hope to which this psalm directs us. It is the, the light of verse 9 by which we see light. The hope of the steadfast love of God shown to his children, the refuge he gives them from the wicked of Psalm 35 and the wicked of Psalm 36, 1 to 4, and 11 and 12, is the heart of this psalm. That God gives his afflicted saints throughout the world. Remember I said last week, one in seven Christians throughout the world are persecuted. 
But God gives them a psalm like this to to cling to and, and to cast themselves upon God's steadfast love in the midst of the things they suffer. Hoping in the God of love and justice who will thrust down the evildoers who plot against his people but give them refuge under the shadow of his wings and make them drink forever from the river of his delights. Like so many other psalms, this psalm lifts our eyes to glory and to the hope of the children of God who trust in his steadfast love. Here I'll close with a reminder that the hope of glory that we see in verses 7 through 9 is only for those who put their trust in the king of love and justice. Only they will feast on the abundance of his house while everyone who sets themselves against him, either in unbelief or indifference, who has no fear of God in your eyes, but, but flatter yourself with the belief that you have no iniquity to be found out, will lie fallen outside of that eternal city destitute of the joy and delight of verse 8. And so even as this psalm speaks to the righteous about the hope of God's steadfast love, encouraging them to persevere on their pilgrim way, so it also speaks to the wicked who set themselves against God's servant and calls them to repent and believe, to kiss the son lest he be angry and he perish in the way, the God of, of steadfast love and justice calls you to flee to him for refuge under the shadow of his wings. And in Matthew chapter 23, over Christ, after going through those seven or eight woes on, on the Pharisees and, and proclaiming the judgment of God on those unbelieving scribes and Pharisees for setting themselves against the Lord's anointed, at the conclusion of that, he then weeps. And says, oh, how I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. The king of love and justice invites you into that love if you will confess your sins and believe on him. And he will bear the judgment you deserve at the cross where the righteous one, God's servant, lie fallen having borne the just judgment of God for all who repent of their sins and trust in him. So listen this morning to David's oracle about the sinfulness in the heart of the wicked, the just judgment of the king of love, and flee to him for refuge. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are both a God of love and Justice, and you will avenge the evils that are done to your people, like David, your servant, or like our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are slain. But it grieves us to hear reports of those kinds of attacks, and so we pray that the church under the shadow of the cross would look to your steadfast love that is higher than heaven, with your firm and, and reliable righteousness that is, is like the mighty mountains and to your justice that is deeper than the ocean and that our brothers and sisters throughout the world would cast themselves upon these things taking refuge under the shadow of your almighty wings. 
We pray that all who at present flatter themselves in their eyes, speak words of deceit, and plot against the king in their heart would repent of their sins and flee to him for mercy. That all who oppose you would be wise and kiss the son, that they might not perish, but have eternal life, feasting in the abundance of your house and drinking from your river of delights. Lord, we pray that that would be true of every one of us gathered here this morning, that we would not deceive ourselves with no fear of you before us, but would see your holiness, your majesty, and would then see our sin in light of it and flee to Christ, we pray in Jesus' name.